Well, friends, as we work through this section of the Bible, it's not really one of those talks that I was excited to give. Uh, It's been one of these weeks where being in the Word hasn't necessarily been a joyous experience. It's been an experience of all sorts of things that repulse us as I've looked into the world of the first century, uh, the actions of men. It's something that we stand back and say, this is so horrible, terrible, disturbing. And it makes us think today, why is this story here? Why is it recorded in God's word to us? I'm sure that for some of us, as we work through the effects and the events that happen in this story, it will touch us. For we've all been touched at some point by some sort of sexual sin. But for many of us, this might hurt. So I want to say today, if things come up for you, please do come and chat to Sarah or myself or someone that invited you. We're happy to pray with you and talk through good next steps. But this is one of the most disturbing parts of God's word. But the thing that disturbs me most in this passage is not what first repulsed me. The thing that disturbs me most in this passage today is the uncanny resemblance of a son to his father. We meet five characters as the story opens up. David, we've been following through the whole books of 1 and 2 Samuel with. He was the king that God chose, the king through whom God would raise up the ruler of his people forever. The king, even though he started well, the king who ended up in adultery and murder. Number two, we meet Amnon. Amnon is David's eldest son. He's the crown prince. And we can't help but think when we hear the name Amnon, is this the one? Is he the man who will lead God's people? Is he the one to fulfill that promise that was said to David in 2 Samuel 7? It's on the screen. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you a descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Is Amnon the man? That's what we're all thinking as we meet this son of David, the crown prince. Then we meet another son of David, Absalom. Absalom was the, probably the second oldest surviving son. There was one in the middle. We just don't hear of him again. We meet Tamar, David's daughter, Absalom's sister and Amnon's half-sister. And we hear she is a beautiful woman. This is part of the family of the king. This is a great family. And then we meet the cousin, Jonadab. He's a cousin of, um, of he was the son of David's brother, Shimea. He's David's nephew and Amnon and Absalom and Tamar's cousin. And in verse 3, he's described as a friend of Amnon. There we have the five characters of this story, the people that we need to know. David, Amnon, Absalom, Tamar, and Jonadab. It's a story that begins with love, but ends up in hate. It moves from thought to action, from right living to wrong doing. 2 Samuel 13, verse 1. Some time passed. David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar. David's son Amnon was infatuated with her. I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Love was 
Amnon's word for how he felt towards Tamar. But he's deluded. What starts off sounding so sweet ends up being so repulsive. What he felt was not love, but infatuation. Love and infatuation are not the same thing. It's a feeling in the story of 2 Samuel and the the story of this family that we've seen before. A feeling that drove a once righteous man to incredible lengths to get what he desired. Bathsheba. To cover up his sin, resulting in adultery and death. A feeling his father had known before. But Amnon was no better at dealing with his feelings than his father was. The desire played on him, as sexual feelings do when they're allowed to. They, they bear roost, they grow. So strong was Amnon's infatuation with his half-sister, it made him sick, physically at first, mentally in what followed next. Tamar here is set up as a virgin. Now, when we hear that word, we, we think just someone who hasn't had sex before. But in the first century, it was really a young woman of maritable age who is sexually mature, who isn't betrothed or married to anyone else. It's more than just they haven't had sex before. What he says about Tamar is here is a woman who is, who is so attractive, so possible, but at the same time so impossible, for it is his sister. The law of God had been explicitly clear that incest, even with a half-brother or sister, was wrong. Check out Deuteronomy 27, verse 22, if you want to look at it later, or Leviticus 18, uh, verse 9 or 11. God's word is clear. To sleep with your sister is wrong. But I'm not sure Amnon cared about the law or had any regard for the word of of, of God. Reminds me again of a father, Amnon's father, that he had fallen into the same trap as well, that he had despised the word of the Lord. We then hear the voice of a friend. A friend can be so helpful, can't they? In times of life when things are going hard, the comforting voice of a friend, the guidance of someone who is around you. I know throughout times of ups and downs in my life, friends have been so comforting, so helpful, giving input into my life, seeing things about me and the situation that I was too caught up to see. They've, they've given perspective, wisdom from the world. But Amnon had a friend who was very shrewd, the narrator tells us. He was certainly observant enough to notice Amnon's misery. Not only was he a friend, Jonadab was part of the family. He's his first cousin. And the thing that puzzles Jonadab as he comes into this situation, as he sees his friend and cousin, was the misery Amnon had, given who his father was. This is the crown prince of Israel. What could possibly be making him so miserable? Have a look at verse 4. Why are you, the king's son, so miserable every morning? Won't you tell me? He's perplexed. He's the son of the king, the crown prince. The whole kingdom of Israel would be his. What could be so hard for him that life would be so miserable? Well, unlike his father David, Amnon's confession comes before the sin. It comes before the sin. But unfortunately, Amnon's confession was to the wrong person. As David confessed to God when Nathan pulled him out for what he had done wrong, Amnon confesses to his so-called friend and gets even more caught up in sin. Look at verse 4. 
Amnon replied, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Now, if Jonadab was truly wise, if he were a true friend, a true friend who followed the Lord, he would have told him to flee temptation, to resist this horrible thing that he was thinking of doing, to say, stop it, you can't go there, this is not for you, this should not happen. If they knew the law of the Lord, if they had let God's word dwell in their lives, that is what he would have said, but it is not what he did say. Paul gives the same advice to the church at Corinth and to Timothy. 1 Corinthians six eighteen. run from sexual immorality. 2 Timothy two twenty two. flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. True friends who love the Lord and who are lovingly able to tell the truth are what we need. That's what we need to be. We need to be friends to one another, partners in the gospel, reminding one another of what matters in life and not letting people walk down pathways that will cause terrible atrocities, both for them in the future and for their relationship between them and God. It's a bit of advice for us here today. Be that kind of friend, not the kind of friend that Jonadab is, be the kind of friend that will keep to God's word, that will love those around you. But Jonadab did not fear the Lord. Look at verse 5. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend you're sick. When your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come and give me something to eat. Let, let me prepare food in my presence so I can watch and eat from her hand. Jonadab was no fool here. Perhaps he saw a fracture in the favorite family, in his cousin and his dad. We'll see Jonadab raise his head at the end of this story a little more, but for the other side of the family. Perhaps this was just a case of boys will be boys. This is what they do. But boys being boys is never okay. Especially when it leads to this. Boys being boys is never okay. Just like his father, David, Amnon sends someone else to do his dirty work. He asks his daddy to indulge his excessive request while he's sick. And David buys the lie. He doesn't see what's going on. The prince gets pampered with cakes from his sister and unbeknownst to David, he sends his own child to the equivalent of her death. Look at verse 13. When she brought the cakes to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come sleep with me, my sister. Don't, my brother, she cried, don't humiliate me for such a thing should never be done in Israel. Don't do this horrible thing. Where could I ever go with my disgrace? And you, you'd be like one of the immoral men of Israel. Please speak to the king, for he won't keep me from you. But he refused to listen to her. And because he was stronger than she was, he raped her. Rape is never okay. It is never all right to take something that not, has not been offered. To take what you desire at the expense of someone else. Please see today that God's word is very, very clear. Rape is not okay. 
It's abhorrent to God. It's abhorrent in Israel. Just hear Tamar's words at this moment. Such a thing should never be done in Israel. Do not do this horrific thing. This is not who we are. God's people don't act like this. Stop it. But the irony of Tamar's powerful words is that that is exactly what had just been done in Israel by Amnon's very own father. The king himself had just taken Bathsheba, the one who was leading his people. The chickens had come home to roost in his son. Friends, please be aware of the terrifying reality of like father, like son. Whether you like it or not, parents, we are a model to our children, whether that be for good or for evil. David here was no model. And there's more here to come. The act, like the words used to describe it, was brutal and brief. He raped her. Literally, he lay her. There is no with there. It just happens. At immense cost to himself and immense cost to his sister, Amnon discovered the deceitfulness of temptation. What looked so good, so right in the moment, something he just had to have suddenly turned so vile the moment the deed was done. What just moments ago was described as love, now after the fact is shown for what it really was. Verse 15. After this, Amnon hated Tamar with such intensity that the hatred he hated her with was greater than the love he had loved her with. Get out of here, he said to her. Satan has always had the shrewdness to let our own desires dress up the ugliness of sin and rebellion against God into a loving prince or princess. He loves to let our desires go and say, yes, go this way and let our minds be filled with something that previously in our right mind we would have said was wrong. He loves to flame, fan into flames the things that we desire. But be assured, friends, when the deed is done and reality sets in, sin delivers no prince or princess, but a dark and cold beast that will drive us to hatred. Hatred of yourself. Hatred of others. Hatred of God. The insight this sentence gives into the human condition. It's profound. It is so profound. Our sexual natures are powerful. They are capable of profoundly powerful good. When we express our sexual natures according to their God-given purpose, that is so good and so right. But they are also capable of powerful and deceptive harm. When our sexual desires and behavior are perverted for their own good purpose, the world falls apart. While the hatred raises its head immediately, the consequences of Amnon's moment of lust will take several years to unravel. And so Amnon sends Tamar away. For now, every time he looks at her, he was to see his own shameful self-obsession. 
His disgust that should have been directed at himself was now directed at Tamar. And so he sends her out. But Tamar's reply, it kind of seems unthinkable to our 21st century ears. Did you hear it? No, it would be even worse to send me away. Stay here. What is going on there? Well, to understand this rape, we have to understand the difference in culture. See, the first century culture had no institutions to look after women. Women, if they weren't married to someone or part of a family, were on their own and they would die. They had no way of earning income. We live in such a privileged society where that is possible now for a woman to be a single mother or to be alone. That is not an option in this age. And so at this moment, she's looking for the recovery of what good could be left in the situation. Rather than sending her away and to be left desolate and on her own without any support, any kind of protection, she says to stay. She tries to recover any part of good that is in that situation that she might not be banished, never to be able to be married again, never to have any income again, to disappear into the pages of history. There is no social security in this age. There is no help from police. There are no institutions to run to. That is what the family provided. That is why God's law had mechanisms for brothers and sisters to look after people in these situations. That is why the law of God said uh, that if the woman was married and someone raped her, then that person was to be killed. But if that person wasn't married, they were to be taken on and the responsibility of the one who raped them. Now to us, again, that sounds so odd. What do you mean? You just want to get her away and out of that situation, don't you? But the law of God was caring for the woman. It was saying that she is now your responsibility financially to keep her secure. That is now your responsibility. You have done this deed. You should look after her. See, marriage was far more about economics than love, about survival than pleasure. Now, there was pleasure. Pleasure is great. Song of Songs talks through the pleasure of marriage and that it's intended to be good. But here, God's law had set up ways to protect women. It is so pro-women. But Amnon's not. He won't have any of it. He doesn't care for God. He doesn't care for her. Throw this woman out, verse 7, and bolt the door behind her. The original doesn't even use the word for a woman. It just says, throw this out. It's a feminine this, but throw this out. The reason this is so abhorrent is that what is abused here is supposed to be so good. A brother and sister are meant to care for one another, that they're family. Sex and the power of sexual desire is meant for the strengthening of love and commitment within marriage. It's meant for the growth of unselfishness in marriage. That is what sex is for, and it is good. But something so good, when it is abused on so many levels, turns into something so horrific. The greater the good, the greater its potential for evil and its abuse. And it is horrific. Tamar walked into her brother's house that day, a virgin daughter of the king, a marriable, marriable woman, beautiful, a princess of the king. Now she walks out ripping the robe that represented all she was, covered in ash, realizing the false security of protection 
from King David. As Tamar walked away from life as she knew it, another voice comes to her. A voice of a brother, another brother. She's found by her brother Absalom. You can imagine what she looked like. You can imagine the moment, how she's feeling. Her appearance, her tears, her misery told what had happened. Listen to what Absalom says in verse 20. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has your brother Amnon been with you? What does that tell you about Amnon's reputation? He sees her like this and says, Did Amnon do this? What sort of a man is the crown prince? What sort of a chip off the old block is this guy? Be quiet now. Be quiet for now, my sister. At this point, Absalom is kind of almost certainly assuring his sister that she doesn't need to deal with this matter herself. And the reason she doesn't need to deal with it is, well, it will become very clear all too soon. When Absalom added, he is your brother, be quiet for now, my sister, he is your brother. He's not asking her to just get over it. He's not saying, look, this is family. Let's keep it hush, hush, move it in the back. Let's be quiet about it and just move on. It's probably a recognition of the reputation Amnon had built the crown prince of the king, the special one who always got what he wanted. This is your brother, remember. So when Absalom said, do not take these things to heart, that wasn't just some hallmark card response to his sister. They were not empty, unsympathetic words. Absalom was in fact taking the matter to his heart. And he would do something about it in good time. So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in the house of her brother Absalom. She was withdrawn from the company of others, no more a prospect of marriage, but in some ways safe in her brother's house. Or would that house remain safe? We do not hear from her again on the pages of history. She disappears. And you get the terror and horror, absolute injustice of what goes on in this situation. We do not hear from her again. But at last, we do hear from the king. Verse 21. When the king heard about all these things, he was furious. Absalom didn't say anything to Amnon, either good or bad, because he hated Amnon since he had disgraced his sister. But what you expect to happen does not happen. When you expect the king to come in with his full force and to enforce what the law said here, he doesn't do it. He does not step in. We don't hear anything else about this at this moment. He just quietly stays in the distance, furious, fuming. And again, we're called to remember another moment King David was furious. When he heard about the story of a, of a rich ruler who had plundered the poor neighbor of their tiny little pet ewe lamb. And had used it to feed this, this, this friend, this visitor who had come along rather than taking one of his own. We remember the fury that David had against this man. Who was that man? Until David realized it was himself. Until he was mercifully confronted with the word of God, David did not act. His fury never led to action. Not here. It may have with Goliath, but not anymore. Not against his son Amnon. The very next verse begins with these words, two years later. 
Nothing happened. Two years. David is deadly silent. Absalom's hatred of his brother will occupy the rest of 2 Samuel. This event is the thing that sparks off an inner family war and will come close, possibly even totally, to destroy David and his kingdom. The question for us is, what will happen? The rest of the chapter uh, that the kids talk pointed through really is another shrewd trick. And we find that at the basis of that shrewd trick, he's the same man who was at the start bringing problems within the family, the cousin, Jonadab. Absalom's vengeance on Abnon. He is so angry and fuming for two years, he plots and plans. And the thing that he plots and plans is a sheep shearing party. I don't know if you've ever been to a sheep shearing party. I don't really know what gets on. I guess there's lots of sheep, lots of shearing, lots of wool afterwards, the smell of lanolin, and be like, hey, let's all get together and shear some sheep. Um, I grew up with, with about uh, 10 sheep on, on our kind of small little property we had. And so sheep was the thing that we had. And I used to remember sheep shearing time. That was great. You get people in and you get all this wool and the sheep would kind of be bounding around and spring was coming. It was a great time, a great time of celebration. And then we'd kill the sheep and eat it. That's what you do. Lamb is so good. It smells so good. Sheep shearing time talks about festivities. And perhaps, perhaps at this sheep shearing festival, there'll be a family reuniting. A family gathering where people come back together. But that is not Absalom's view. He wants to take vengeance on his brother Amnon. He invites all the brothers, manipulating King David to send Abnon along. King David sends Amnon. He must go. And there, Absalom sends his men to kill Amnon. So much sending in this book. So little listening. And we have another son of David pretending to be God. Pretending he can call the shots on life and death. Pretending he knows what is right and what isn't. Vengeance was not his to take, but he did take it. He has Amnon killed. And we find out at the end that there's a friend there who's telling David the story of what happened, who's putting the events in place, who'd probably been with Absalom the whole time. Do you know who that friend was? Jonadab, Amnon's friend. The two-timing friend who gives advice to split a kingdom to turn a family against each other and to see terrible atrocities that happen. Friends, do not be that friend. The story ends with David and all his servants weeping bitterly. Why is this story here? Why do we have it recorded for us on the pages of history? Well, let me give you five points. Give you spacing for that point you're in. Five reasons why this is so important for us to hear. Number one, you and I have the same human heart as Amnon. We have the same proclivity to turn our backs on God, to live our way and not his. The reason this story is recorded in all its detail is that we need to look and learn. We need to learn what we are capable of. And we are, friends, capable of all these atrocities. We need to look at what sin does when it takes root in our life. And to look at how deceptive temptation is, particularly sexual temptation. 
We need to look at how loudly sinful desire screams out over reason and rationality and right living and, and clouds our view. We need to hear this. We need to look at the misery it brought this family. And we need to learn. This is God's world. We are God's creatures. If we defy God's way, terrible damage will be done to ourselves and to others. Learn the first lesson. We have the same heart as Amnon. Flee sin. Run away from temptation. Do not do it. It might not be rape that is the thing that is in front of you, but how many marriages divide and people take steps that they think will be fine, that they think is the right way to go, and we push the boundaries. Someone once said to me about sexual sin, and it's been very helpful. You can't stop birds flying over a tree, but you can stop them building a nest in your tree. Sexual sin is like that. There are opportunities that go past and our minds will think, what if? But we must not let that bird make its nest in our tree. Shake the tree. Go away. No, that is not where I go. Talk to a Christian friend. Share it. That you might keep serving the Lord and trusting in him. We have the same human heart as Amnon. Number two. We need to remember why this story happened in the first place. It's recorded for us so that we might remember that this is the direct result of David's sin. When David took Bathsheba and committed adultery with her, when she had Uriah the Hittite killed, God had said, this is what will happen. The whole situation, as as evil and horrific as it is, is just the setup for a war that's about to come. And all of it is, is, is a result of David despising the word of God. Remember God's promise, the consequences of this sin? Look back with me, 2 Samuel 12, verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. The sword will not leave this house, not even to the end. God always keeps his word. There are no false threats with God. No kind of, oh, I'm saying something harsh to ski, but it's not really that bad. God's word is true and his plans come about. He uses the horrible nature of our own responsibilities and distortions to bring about his plans and purposes. He uses the terror of human rebellion to sometimes punish while never removing the responsibility of that person's sin. What God says happens. This is who he is. His word is true. Why should Tamar suffer though? That's the question I'm left with. Why does she go through this? Why does this happen? For the same reason that we all suffer. We live in a world where people are hell-bent on making themselves king. You and me included. On, on making our own role, rules, on living our own way, on being individuals. My life, my way. Rejecting the good and loving God. We live in a whole world that is like that. We do it ourselves. We are at war with our Creator. And when you live in a war zone, nothing is as, as it should be. All sorts of atrocities happen because people are rebelling against the good God, 
This story is recorded for us to show us the effects of our sin, but also to help us long for the day when sin is no more. Don't you long for the day when God's kingdom comes in its entirety? When His will is fully done on earth as it is in heaven? When there is no more mourning or crying or pain for sin is dealt with and our hearts are changed and people live as God set up to be? How I long for that. When rape is no more, ever. When hurt is gone, when my own rebelliousness against God is dealt with, how I long for that day. This world that is full of suffering, friends, is not all that there is. There is a day when the King of kings and Lord of lords will return and he will put everything right. But at the same time, how aware I am of my need for his guidance. How aware I am that I need to listen to the word of God now. I need his word to call out my sin, to set forth his ways. But how thankful I am for his forgiveness. These events are recorded so that we might see we have the same human heart. So we might remember why this happened in the first place, the result of sin. Thirdly, they happen to remind us that vengeance is not ours. Vengeance is the Lord's. In the course of life, we all suffer from the sinfulness of others, just as others suffer from our own sinfulness, don't they? The resulting desire to cause hurt in someone who's hurt us is so strong often. We want to show that person what they have done. We want to make it clear to them that they caused us pain. And our response can kind of range from, look, I'll never speak to them again. That's the punishment. That's the vengeance. All the way through to, I want to kill them. I want to take them out. Get away from me. But vengeance is not right. Not for people like us who who don't have a clear view of everything. Not for imperfect humans like us. Deuteronomy 32 verse 35 God says this, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Vengeance is his, no one else's. Vengeance is his and his justice will be perfect. His vengeance will be right. Those who believe in God's promises, we we don't need to avenge ourselves. We know that unlike us, God gets his vengeance right. There, There is reason to trust him. There's reason to pray your kingdom come. Because God will enact his justice and vengeance. But if we're honest, some of us might not like God's way. God's way of sorting things out involves forgiveness. And some of us don't want forgiveness for our enemies. We want them to suffer. We want them to rot. But when it comes to our own actions, oh, we plead for forgiveness. We might not like God's way because it involves vengeance on those who do not know God. Listen to the words of Paul in 2 Thessalonians. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels, taking vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Vengeance will come and it is the Lord's. King of kings and Lord of lords will come. Will you pray for his kingdom? Your 
kingdom come. Fourthly, why are these recorded for us? They're recorded so we might be aware of the terrifying reality of like father, like son. If you care for your children, parents, then guard your integrity. Share your failings with your kids. Model your need to come to your saviour and ask for forgiveness. I was thinking over my own parenting, even this morning, as I know what I'm going to say. When was the last time that I overstepped my mark? When was the last time that I told my kids I was sorry for being too angry at them? When was the last time that I actually held them to their punishment rather than putting it out and then, and then pulling it back? How have you modelled truthfulness to your kids? How have you modelled godly characteristics? What are you instilling in your children by your example in the way you live, in the priorities that you live out? Amnon was just a chip of his dad's block. It's not just our words and what we say, but the way we live our lives. How thankful I am God forgives our failings. How thankful I am that we can be open and honest and repentant to our God before our children and show them the grace that comes because of Jesus. But do hear the terrifying reality of like father, like son in this passage. As a quick side note, I want to say some people see in this a generational curse. You know, there's something with certain families that there can be a generational curse passed down. I want to say that there's no super spiritual omen you need to go and exercise from your family. You can kind of see that in the New Testament. What we do see is Satan lurking around our relationships, our family, our friends, our marriages, our desires, and looking for every opportunity to see the desire in us to reject God's word and just poke it, just fan it into flames and say, go on, go do this. In your family, flee sin and model that for your children. Model confession. If you are a child, come to your parents and don't look at them as the one who need to be perfect. Look at your heavenly father as the one who is perfect. And model to them what it is to love them like God has loved you despite your sin and despite theirs. The last thing we see in the story 2 Samuel 13, is how it fits in the greater story of the whole book. We've been waiting for a son of David, someone who'll come from his body, who'll reign on his throne forever. And if Absalom, sorry, Amnon and Absalom are anything to go by, it doesn't give us much hope. Who will be this king that will lead God's people? The story should make us puzzled. We should kind of get this picture that the children of flawed people are just as flawed as their parents. They don't get better. There's no way that they just kind of go suddenly, oh, they're way, 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 way better. The problem with human leadership is that even great and good leaders can produce terrible sons. Look at Eli. Look at Samuel. Look at David. The sons are dropkicks. But as we hear the story of Amnon and Absalom, we can stand back and be amazed (laughs) That even through the rebellion that exists within David's own family, God would raise up a son that did not inherit his father David's flaws, but his father who is in heaven's joy and glory. The son who would come, who is Jesus, in the line of David, 
was just like the chip off his dad's block. He came to call us to a kingdom where corruption and evil, like that of Amnon and Absalom, can be washed clean. He came to give life. It brings great joy to say we have now seen this king, the leader who can rule us. Listen with me to the words of Paul, a man who was once hell-bent on hating this David's son, Jesus. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or anyone practicing homosexuality, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Let me read it again because I want us to feel this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? No sexually immoral people, no idolaters, no adulterers, nor anyone practicing homosexuality, no thieves, no greedy people, no drunkards, no verbally abusive people or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And that is what some of you used to be like. But you were washed. You were sanctified, made clean before God. You were justified. In other words, declared right in God's sight because of what Jesus had done. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is what some of us were. How thankful we can be that David's great-great-grandchild Jesus came and lived a perfect life so that we could be washed clean. Today, if there are things in that list that describe you, please hear the hope of Christianity. You don't need to stay there. You too can have this set of you. That is what some of you used to be like. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Friends, when the atrocities of the world close in, we can run to Jesus. We can see that he has cleansed our sin and he has given us great hope and that we need to trust him. Flee sexual immorality and run to the loving arms of the Father who's shown his love in his Son that we might be called children of God. Let's pray. Father, as we... (laughs) think over the events of this part of history. Our repulsion does not even match yours. As we see the way that the human race and ourselves so naturally rebel against you, we are so thankful that you don't treat us as we deserve. Father, we pray for the parents that are amongst us that we might parent our children in ways that pass on grace and mercy, that we might point our children to love you and the forgiveness that has been offered in Jesus. We pray for the, the children of this church, that you would raise them up trusting Jesus, that they would not be like us, not in our sinfulness, but they would be like you. Father, we ask that we would run to the forgiveness that is found in Jesus. And as we live our lives, you would help us to be friends who help others to flee temptation and that we ourselves would flee it. 
We pray today that if there are things that you have brought up in our life that you'd provoke us to speak to a friend. You'd call us to confession to you and to the hope and forgiveness found in your son. Father, we pray this day, your kingdom come. Amen.